information you just gave us about Mexico and your plan going forward. Uh, so this morning, we are going to be in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, we're continuing our series on discipleship this morning. We've already had really four messages on the topic at this point, if you count the discipleship conference and all of that going on also. And I'm going to do my very best to not rehash what we've already covered. If you hear something you've already heard, promise me, like, stick with me. I promise it's going somewhere. So how many here this morning love shopping on Amazon? Is that anybody else? Yeah? So though the world word disciple is not typically used outside of the Christian faith, uh, I feel it's safe to say that I discipled my wife in the ways of Amazon. She used to always wonder why I would check Amazon before I bought anything. And I would. I mean, the price is always better. It gets there in two days. I love Amazon. But now we have 221 items in our save for later area, and uh, less than a quarter of those are mine. So Amazon's great, right? In two days or less, you can have almost anything at your front door for a cheaper price than you could even go out and buy it yourself. You don't have to worry about it being in stock. You can see it right there. It's already in stock. You don't have to waste your time and gas to go out and get it and deal with, you know, the Walmart right there on Walnut Creek. I can't stand that Walmart. I don't know about y'all. You just add it to your cart, check out, and wait the two days for it to get there. Amazon is great, but it has, it has its own issues. Uh, we had what was called a Duna car seat for both Atticus and Hugo, and those things are expensive. They're great, but they're expensive. It's that nifty little car seat that uh, transforms into a stroller, folds back up into a car seat, and goes into your car. They're great, but you pay for that convenience that comes with it. Thankfully, my family found it for us on sale, and it wasn't nearly as ridiculously expensive. But in the past few years, there's been a big trend of these counterfeit car seats being sold on sites such as Amazon. I saw a story of one of these car seats sold by a seller named Strolex. You can't find it anymore. They're shut down. But it had the side-by-side -side of two of those car seats, the Duna, the authentic one, and the Strolex car seat. And we've owned the Duna car seat for three years at this point. And I had a hard time looking and telling which was which. They looked pretty similar. They did a really solid job of making them look legit. And this fake one, $200 cheaper than the real car seat. I mean, how can you pass that up? It sounds like a great deal. It looks like the real deal. But the truth is, all you have is a knockoff. When it comes to car seats, that's a really dangerous thing, especially when that knockoff doesn't meet the federal requirements for a car seat. I saw a video of a 30-mile-an-hour uh, crash test on that car seat. And 30 miles an hour isn't all that fast. In the copycat car seat, in the crash test, it fractured, it slid forward, it broke apart, and the toddler dummy twisted around in the seat. And it was really terrible to watch, even though it was just a crash test. It kind of made me sick watching and see, seeing what happened there. But then there was a video of the authentic, and in that, the car seat flexed a little bit, but it stayed exactly in the spot that it was supposed to be in. I'm glad with our boys what we had was the authentic and not the cheap knockoff. The authentic is always going to be better than the knockoff, though it may cost more. 
as we discuss the cost of discipleship this morning, we have to be aware that there are knockoff versions of discipleship. There are knockoff versions of grace that exist. A man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the term cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that was published in 1937. If anyone were to know about the cost of discipleship, it would have been this man. He was born in Germany in 1906 and was hanged in April of 1945 after he was linked to an attempted assassination of Hitler that ended up failing. This was a really cool guy with a really cool story that if you take the time to look it up, you'll see that he really epitomized the cost of discipleship. But when he talked about cheap grace, he could have been speaking directly to the church today. Rather than the type of grace we see presented in the Bible, we've peddled this cheap grace to everyone around us. This cheap grace helps no one past the point of maybe making them feel better about their sin, uh, when in reality, this cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. It says that instead of following Christ, we should simply enjoy the comfort of grace for our sins. We don't have to worry about changing because we find comfort in forgiveness. So we can keep on going because cheap grace. It says our sins are covered, so it never calls us to anything more. Cheap grace justifies the sin without ever justifying the sinner. Bonhoeffer said this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution, which is release from guilt, obligation, or punishment, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is the enemy of the church, yet many churches treat it like their best friend. We want to see professions of faith, but we don't care about fruits of repentance. We want belief without actual surrender. We want to make following Christ as easy as possible so that we can win as many people to Christ as we can. And in doing so, we've created many converts, but very few disciples. In doing this, we've created two separate standards within Christianity, and we've allowed for some people to simply be converts or a believer, while there's a higher tier of Christian called a disciple that actually follows Jesus' commands. We've created this minimum and maximum standard of Christian obedience. Those living to the lower standard can justify their lifestyle by pointing to those living the higher standard that are actually making a difference when they're called out saying that, Christians have become secularized, but that's not the way that it should be. The following of Christ, discipleship, it's not an achievement by a select few, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. There's no higher or lower standard to reach. There's the call to follow Jesus, the call to be his disciple. It's not a plea to make a momentary decision to get forgiveness and peace and heaven and then go on living the exact same way you were before. The invitation of Jesus to the lost was always a call to costly commitment, and it is still a call to costly commitment. In our passage this morning, Luke 14, we'll discover that Jesus had great crowds following him. Pay attention as we read this, how Jesus handles these crowds. I'm interested to see if the way he handles the crowds is the same way that we would handle the crowds if we were in his shoes. Uh, I know how I would want to speak to all of these people, 
but Jesus does something that we would perceive to be very strange. Luke chapter 14, we're going to pick up in verse 25. It says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going down to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desire conditions of peace. So likewise, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all he hath cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. God, we love you and uh, just so thankful for your word this morning and so thankful that you have given us grace. You've given us a way to come back into relationship with you, but I pray that you'll help us to recognize that there's a cost involved with that. There is a commitment, a requirement of us as well, not just to be the same that we've always been, but when we accept that grace, we've got to turn to you. We've got to change, and we'll see that in our lives. And I pray that as we cover the cost of discipleship this morning, that you would give me the words to speak and just give us open hearts and open minds for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he takes what we would see as an opportunity to tell people, you know, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and instead, he says, this is what it costs to follow me. Imagine what it would look like if instead of us saying, follow Jesus, your life will be so much better in every way, we took Jesus' approach and said, there's a cost to following me. Imagine how fewer people we would probably win, but how much more committed the ones that we won probably would be. Jesus tells us in verse 28 through 32 to consider those costs before we just dive in head first. You wouldn't build a house without first asking, what is this going to cost me? You'd be a terrible general if you went into, army, into battle with a smaller army and didn't even consider how much you might lose. But when it comes to discipleship, it seems like we often just charge straight ahead without ever even considering the cost. Though grace is free, there's nothing we can do to earn it. It requires a great commitment, and it bears a great cost on our lives. What is the cost of discipleship? In what areas of your life will following Christ cost you? First, we see that there are relational costs. Jesus said in verse 25 that you've got to hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. But when he says this, this hate isn't in the sense of uh, actually hating, not in the sense that we would typically use the word hate. It's more so in the sense of that we would love Jesus so much that it looks like hate towards our family, that it looks like hate towards our friends. Genesis 29 gives us a great example of this. It talks about Jacob who had two wives through the deception of Laban. Uh, Genesis 29, 30, and 31. It says, and he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. 
and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So we see in that passage, it says first that she's loved less, but then it says that she's hated. I think we can take those two uh, examples back to back and essentially say that the hate that it's talked about there isn't, I hate you. It's simply loving less. The same goes for our relationships with others when compared to Jesus. So I love my grandparents dearly, but I had grandparents and great-grandparents that when I surrendered to ministry were so upset with me. They nearly lost it on me. They seemed to think that I was wasting my potential in doing so. They thought, you're going to be poor your entire life. And they may not necessarily be wrong on that, but they were thinking that I was wasting my life by following Christ. They've since come around, but the fact of the matter is, when we're truly following Jesus, there are going to be family that doesn't get it. There's going to be friends that don't get it. They'll think we're crazy, and it has great potential to have a huge negative impact on those relationships. So there's relational costs. There's also financial costs. It's said in verse 33 that whosoever doesn't forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. A lot of times when we reach a passage like this, what we try and do is we come up with an alternative meaning. We say, oh, Jesus didn't actually mean this. What he really meant was this. And in doing so, we neglect what the whole of scripture actually says about the issue. There are many other similar examples throughout scripture, but let's look at what Matthew 13, 44 says. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. So it says that the kingdom of heaven is a great prize of so much value that we should be willing to give up all of our material possessions in order to have it. Following Christ will cost everything you own, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sell everything you have as did the man who found the treasure of the merchant or uh, who found the pearl. But notice in verse 44, when he did that, it said he went and sold everything he had with joy. It wasn't, I have to live a poor life. It was, I'm selling all of this stuff for something greater. But like I said, that doesn't mean we have to go sell legitimately everything that we have. But we have to be willing to lose it. Your resources may stay in your control as a steward, but we recognize that those resources are no longer ours. They're no longer our focus, our worry. It belongs to God. When you follow Christ, you assume that the cost could be total. The third way it can cost us is temporal cost or related to time. In one of our messages during the discipleship conference, Brother Hayward went in and he really broke down the process of Jewish education. And he talked about how by about the age of 16, if a student was really exceptional, they could hopefully 
begin to learn under a rabbi for approximately the next 14 years of their life. In those 14 years, they would follow that rabbi everywhere. They would go where he went. They would sleep where he slept. I mean, it was a 24-7 commitment. But the same goes for our discipleship. We follow Christ 24-7, and the way we use our time is going to begin to change. We may not have as much chill time as we used to have because we begin centering our time less on ourselves and more on others. One of the costs involved in, in uh, being a disciple is making disciples, and that is going to take some time. Spending time with people outside of church services, spending time in the Word, being able to uh, conversate about it and teach, it's going to cost time. And though being a disciple doesn't only happen in the walls of this building, the things that are going on here are going to be important to you, and it's going to take up more and more of your time. You'll be volunteering, serving. It's going to cost time and energy. And lastly is physical costs. Luke 14, 27, it said, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A lot of times we take that portion of scripture and we apply it to menial things in our lives. Oh, my back's hurting right now. That's my cross to bear. But in the first century church, that is not what the cross would have meant. We've spiritualized the cross today in our day and age. We wear it as jewelry. We hang it as decorations in our homes. But in the first century context that Jesus was speaking, the cross would have only meant one thing, and it was death. It was torture. It was execution. When first century Christians heard Jesus say, take up your cross, they recognized it not as I might have some pain here and there. They recognized it as a call to death. The cost of discipleship is total. It's everything. Disciples are either all in or they're not in at all. When we follow Christ, we renounce everything we have and everything we were. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In Christ, we're a new creation. It said that the old was passed away, but that verse says all things are become new. It's speaking of totality in our lives. It's not just I'm new in this area. It's no, my life is no longer who I used to be, it's everything. Every Christian is a disciple. Every Christian is a follower of Christ. Some are more faithful than others, but every true believer has committed themselves to following Christ. Know that even in those moments, uh, a moment of failure doesn't ruin a disciple. There are some this morning probably thinking that I might be being a little bit hard on what it takes to be a disciple. I might be, I don't know, pushing people away, scaring people away. But Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it.
Few will be willing to give up what it takes to follow. Few will be willing to surrender to what Bonhoeffer termed as costly grace. He said this, costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too high a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. All the so-called costs, all the potential total losses are nothing when compared to the gain in Christ, when compared to that treasure that we can find. Uh, I read this just a few days ago. It said, when life offers you a dream so far beyond any of your expectations, it's not reasonable to grieve when it comes to an end. Following Jesus costs us our life. It costs us our all. It costs our actions, our relationships, our time, and our money. But what it offers is so much greater than anything we can imagine. We should like the man who found the treasure in the field joyfully give up everything we have for the cause of Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Jesus, you haven't committed to following him, my prayer is that you would do that today. But first, count the costs. Realize that following Jesus, it's not an easy thing. It'll cost you greatly. But also know that there is a cost to not following Christ. There is a cost to remaining in your sins, and that cost is eternal torment and separation from God. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. The, the payment for our sin, what we've earned by sin, is death and the wrath of God, and there's nothing we can do of our own accord to work our way out of it. But God gave Jesus who lived a perfect life, who suffered on the cross for our sins. He took upon himself the wrath of God, died, and rose again three days later. And he's calling you to follow him, believe on him, repent of your sins, and confess him as Lord. It'll cost a lot, but the joy found in him is more than worth it. If you would stand with heads bowed and eyes closed, in just a moment, we will open with a time of invitation. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. God, we love you and uh, just so thankful for your word and so thankful.